1: You can hear the game on our sister station, 93 WIBC, with the voice of the Hoosiers, Don Fisher, who joins us now. And Don, I'm going to begin with this before we really get into the Purdue nuances of it. Uh, That Minnesota game, of course, on a Friday night to kick off the weekend, I thought for Indiana really encouraging because we have known, and I've heard a lot about from people that watch in practice, what a great shooter Mackenzie Mbacco is. But you and I talked about it last week. That He kind of just needed to be turned loose, like, you know, maybe even like get out of the structure a little bit and just kind of let his relax a little bit and go. And it seems to me for a freshman player that McKenzie and Baco, that Minnesota game was the sign of that, that the the training wheels are coming off a little bit. Is that is that kind of understating it or is that accurate?
0: I think it's fairly accurate. I, I think the thing about it, Jake, is this. Um, this guy has been learning the game a little bit from the standpoint of going from the college level to the to, – or from the high school level to the college level, and it's taken him a while. But, you know, each ball game he seems to get a little bit more comfortable – Obviously, the biggest issue, as far as playing time was concerned, was his defensive issues. And he just wasn't playing very good at the defensive end of the floor. And Mike has always said, look, you're going to have to play defense first, and then the offense will come. Well, obviously, when you don't have a lot of playing time, and he hadn't had a ton of it up until the last three, four weeks, um, you know, it just didn't come as quickly as people wanted. But I think the thing about him, that he did in this Minnesota ball game that I hadn't really seen a lot of before, he drove the ball to the basket. When guys came out on him and tried to stop him from shooting a three, he he went around a lot of people in this game and got to the rim aggressively, which is the first time I've seen that on a consistent basis in a game itself throughout this season. So I think that was a big plus. And then, of course, he was knocking down his threes. And, you know, as a three-point shooter, we've talked about him a lot being that one of his strengths, but we hadn't seen a lot of it up to this point. However, in the last six ball games, he's hitting 48% on 14 of 29 from the arc. So that tells you that he's really starting to feel comfortable.
1: And, Don, with that, you know, I remember a year ago, let's go back to when, you know, Indiana-Purdue, and in particular that game in Mackey where Jalen hood Shafino was so good, right? I listened to your entire broadcast of that, and, you know, I could tell as you're calling it when he was hitting shots – you were seeing it before your eyes, right, where it was kind of all coming together for him. But yep. but clearly Indiana found something with Hood Shafino to kind of break down in the mid-range game Purdue defensively. If they're going to try to replicate that, if Mike Woodson looks at that film and says, well, we did it with Jalen Hood Shafino, is Mbako capable of that? Can he be a guy that gets into, or or is that more, let's say, an Xavier Johnson role, to kind of get into that soft lane and hit that mid-range shot?
0: Well, to your point, <laughs> I don't know what role Xavier Johnson currently has. Yeah, you're right. Because he started to struggle a little bit since he came back from uh, his month-long uh, injury issue. Um, but that being said, I-, I can't tell you what Mike's game plan is for this contest. I can tell you that is going to be a key. I-, I think he has to be a key in this ball game. They're going to need an outside shooter. They're going to need somebody that hits it more consistently, and he's been the most consistent of uh, anybody that any has played this year. So th- they need him to do that kind of thing. Now, whether it's in the same role as what Jalen Hood, did it or not, I don't know. I-, I don't know what the game plan is at this point. And I talked to Mike this morning briefly, and he wouldn't tell me what his game plan was. <laughs> so <laughs> at any rate, all I can tell you is at this juncture, I'm just glad the kid's playing better. But I think this is going to be a huge challenge for this Indiana basketball team because consistency is not the thing that we've seen the most of out of this ball club so far this year. And I think uh, if they could play a game like they did against Minnesota, at least from the standpoint of getting everybody involved like they did, I mean, obviously, Trey Galloway had a tremendous ball game against Minnesota, uh, looked like he could be an actual point guard. I mean, and, and we've said that about him before. Last year, he got a lot of opportunity because of the injury to Xavier Johnson and and I think he's kind of in, embraced that role more so this year than he did a year ago but he hasn't been consistent with his performances so in my mind right now I think this team has to play a really good basketball game just to have a chance in this contest because I think Purdue's that good
2: voice of the Hoosiers Don Fisher is our guest Don you mentioned Xavier Johnson not with the inconsistencies not starting this past game against Minnesota. Instead, it's Gabe Cups. They've asked a lot out of the freshman already in his young Hoosier career. It's not a scoring threat against Minnesota, but it is his defensive tenacity. Holds Elijah Hawkins, among others, to five points on two-for-twelve shooting. When Purdue can attack you in so many different ways, and especially such if you're focused on Edie, they going to kick it out to shooters or go with their guard play. Regardless of if Cups starts or not tomorrow night, how important is what he's been able to do defensively as a freshman to their overall attack against Purdue? Well,
0: it's hugely important because if you look at the guard play so far this year, when Galloway and Cups play together, the guards for the other ball club don't seem to do as well. It's because both those guys are so aggressive at the defensive end of the floor. And I, I honestly, I, I know that Purdue's guards are much better than they were a year ago, too. Uh, so I think that's going to be the biggest challenge, and you know you've heard Mike Woodson say he's not been happy with his perimeter play uh, for a long time now, um, and it's because of the inconsistency more than anything else. And I don't think it's because he doesn't think Trey's a good player or Gabe Cops doesn't do enough or those. I think it's because the consistency level of the guard play has just not been there. And of course, Xavier Johnson, since they he came back from the injury in the last uh, four ball games now has not been consistent. In fact, he's had three bad ball games compared to the one good one, which was the Ohio State contest. So I think the guard play in this game is going to be a critical factor. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Uh, Khalil Ware facing up against Zach Eady for the first time. That's going to be an interesting matchup. And obviously, uh, uh, Trey uh, Trey, uh, Kaufman-Wren is another guy that didn't play a ton last year against IU, and we haven't seen a lot of him, but he's obviously playing pretty well for this ball club and they've got a deeper bench than they've had in some time Caleb Burst who started the last two years isn't even a starter this year uh they've got Camden Hyde who's a redshirt freshman from Minnesota that's starting to play better and I think the best sixth man in the in the maybe in the country might be Mason Gillis this guy just does all those little things that you absolutely love out of a basketball player and I just think because they are better, and Lance Jones, and we haven't even mentioned him, and he's, he's come on to be one of their better scorers, uh, you, you've got a basketball team that's deep, they have all the talent in the world, and for Indiana to beat them, they'll have to play the best game they've played all season long.
1: Don, maybe unfair to ask, because I realize you don't see Purdue game in and game out, but clearly you're familiar with them. I, from what you've seen, do you think Purdue's strength is more that they have a style and a versatility that is just impossible to to try to corral or are they good enough and versatile enough that they find out what you do what style you want to play and take you out of it in other words are you when you go up against Purdue more often than not are you trying to impose your will on them or simply stave off their will on you
0: well (laughs) <laughs> I know I, you're right. I haven't seen enough of the Boilermakers at this point. I just, I know a lot about them, but I don't, I haven't seen them as much as most people have. I, I just think they're a ball club that is really well coached. I think Matt Painter gets his kids to play the roles that he wants them to play. I think he gets his players to understand exactly how they want to uh, perform out there. I think they're always a good, pretty good defensive team. I, you know, I think, the one thing that they've got that nobody else has is Zach Eady. Yeah. And to have a guy like that, I mean, there's just, there's, there's, what do you do? How do you stop him? You know, Don, Uh, you really can't.
1: The thing that's to me, that's so impressive about Zach Eady, and, and this sounds so elementary, it's, it's, it almost sounds absurd, but he has such a, a, for as big as he is. And for oftentimes when he, when he's posting down low, and tell me if this makes sense. He has an incredible awareness at all times of where he is in relation to the basket. I think sometimes yep. guys playing down low, they turn around and, and they're thrown off a little bit as to how deep or how far out they are. He seemingly has an incredible feel for his size, which to me, it, you just don't see that to that level, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. And, and here's the other thing about him, and, and, and I really believe this. This guy works at the game. I mean, he has gotten better every year he's been at Purdue. The first time I saw him play for Purdue, I just thought he was a lumbering ox out there. I didn't think he was that great. I mean, he was big and he was strong and, you know, you had a tough time with him, but he wasn't playing great basketball. The second time I saw him was the same year. The second time in his first year at, at Purdue, I thought he'd already made dramatic improvements in his game and I've seen that each and every year he has played. The one thing I haven't seen him do, and it's just like Trace Jackson Davis, I haven't seen him shoot a lot of jump shots. I don't know if he's a great uh, jump shot shooter or not because he doesn't have to do that right. and they don't ask him to. But I'll tell you this, the NBA people have now put him in the lottery. Which, you know, that didn't happen before. So that tells you that already they've seen something this year that they hadn't seen previously.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, certainly that to your point, Don, the level of just kind of the comfort with his feet if that makes sense like just his fleet of foot you know, he he made a. Earl look like usain bolt when he first got there and then <laughs> you know and now like he's got a pretty good feel he's grown into his body where that same trajectory you know makes you wonder like 2 years from now what this guy could be right in at a professional level um i want to get back to xavier johnson though real quick because you said something i think's interesting Look, we know he has the capability of being a talented player. And I know that maybe injury has hurt him a little bit. To me, Don, what is frustrating, and I'm very on the outside, but for a player of his age and his experience level, some of the immature things that have set him aside (laughs) during the game, to me, are just head-pounding. Is is there any chance he falls out of rotation or does his offensive – potential keep him in rotation at all times
0: well if you look at his play in the last four games you you can't be happy Um, if I'm the head coach I'm not happy Um, and I, I just think that he struggles with doing I don't know, playing the right way sometimes., I, mean, I think he tries to play the way he thinks he should play or the way he wants to play, rather than the way the coaches have asked him to play. I, I, I don't know if that's the right if, if, if that's the right construction on what I'm saying here, all I can tell you is sometimes you get a game like he had against Ohio State. He was spectacular in that game. He didn't do anything wrong. He was doing everything right. Uh, he scored the basketball. He got the ball where it needed to be. He helped other people. He was terrific at the defensive end. And that's the only game out of the first four we've seen him since coming back from that injury in December, which made him miss the entire, almost the entire month of December. It's the only time he's played well. And, and I don't know where that comes from. I don't know if he just doesn't get it, if he's just not mature enough to handle it. Uh, I can't answer the question for you. All I can tell you is we need him. Indiana needs him to be a good player. And thus far, the outside of the Ohio State game, you can't say that.
2: Don, we know inevitably, Don Fisher, voice of the Hoosiers, taking some time with us here on Query and Company. We know inevitably that doubles will come for E.D. That they, they almost have to with how dominant that he is. But when you look at the structure of this matchup, if you could pick one area that Indiana has to have, is it consistent three-point shooting, or is it Khalil Ware not being... Overtaken or shying away from the challenge that is guarding the likely two-time national player of the year in Zach Eadie.
0: This might sound strange to you, but I honestly believe if Indiana doesn't turn the ball over, they will give themselves a chance. I think turnovers okay. have been such an issue with this ball club. When they played their best, they don't turn the ball over. When they play their worst, they turn it over a, a ton of times. And we've just seen that too much this year. Um, I, I think the turnover factor, and I think the other area, too, is rebounding, because that's the other area that Mike has been concerned with. They just haven't had great, consistent rebounding this year either. And Malik renew is a big part of that. that that's why, I mean, he's only averaging right at six rebounds a ball game. That's not enough for a guy at 6'9", 233, who's as physical as he is. Khalil Ware... I mean, here in recent ball games, he's averaging like 13 rebounds a ball game. I mean, he had 17 rebounds, I think, in the game against uh, Rutgers. Um, I think he had 14, a double double, against uh, Minnesota, um, and he's had multiple uh, double figure rebound ball games this year. In fact, in Big Ten play, I think he's averaging 11 a contest. So. I, You know, I, I think the rebounding and the turnovers and the turnovers specifically, they, they'll give themselves a chance to win if they take care of the basketball. If they don't, they've got no chance.
1: Dom, one of my favorite things as we get set for Indiana-Purdue every year I do this, I always send a tweet that says, okay, whether you are an IU or Purdue fan, tell me the player of the other school that deep down you never admitted it, but you always kind of liked the guy as a player. The two IU guys that get the most votes in this are always Calbert Chaney and Damon Bailey. And the two Purdue players that always get the most votes are Robbie Hummel and Troy Lewis. But deep down, a lot of people are like, I hated him, but I kind of like Brian Cardinal, too. (laughs) Cardinal's one of those guys, like, you didn't like him, but you knew, if that guy was on my team, that'd be my favorite player of all time, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you you think about it, I mean, you could put Brian Cardinal on the Purdue side, and you could put Dane Fife on the Indiana side, and you'd have a pair there.
1: That's exactly right. No, you're exactly right. (laughs) Same dude, right? Don. Absolutely. Have a good call tomorrow night. We'll be listening to it on 93 WIBC, Indiana and Purdue. Always fun. Always appreciate the conversation. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. Don Fisher, the voice of the Indiana Hoosiers.
3: Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you.
1: What does everybody want to do when it is sub-zero outside, when the wind chill is 20 below, when you're windshield needs to be scraped you do what we're about to do right now and that is go to the beach we're just going to beach grove
2: joining us now blankets i thought we're gonna get some blankets out and bundle That's up right. here i thought you were gonna chat fireside with us
1: not well we could do that too but right. uh joining us now on the program he is the dean of football writers here in central indiana from cbs4 and wxin mike chappell joins us um chap First things first, I want to ask you this off the box because if there's anybody that would know, uh, it would be you. But, you know, I think Colts fans are now aware that the Colts had issued a statement before Chris Ballard met with the media last week regarding Jim Irsay simply saying that he was um, battling a severe upper respiratory illness and Chris Ballard had said that he was stable and they were working through that, didn't know if there was any update on the Colts owner.
4: No, I wish we had one, uh, but no. It, so yeah, it, it's then your mind starts wandering. But no, no updates. And oh, I guess all we can do again. I've known Jim since <laughs> they moved here in '84. We're we're as close as media and, and an owner can be. I uh, consider him a friend. But no, you, all you can do is keep him in your thoughts and hopefully he is is getting better and will soon be back running the team that he really loves like his family.
1: You know this period, Mike is so critical obviously, maybe not right now, but when you start getting into you know free agency talk and then also you know getting ready for the draft and those sorts of things um, you know, I would assume that Jim Mercer is a a major piece in that. and my thought process is, well, wow, you know if he's not around and inside the facility, you know, how do things run without him and he, but but that said, how involved, I mean, I know he's involved, but how involved? Like, in other words, is there kind of precedent for if if he's battling a health illness for them to kind of operate business as usual without him around, or would it be truly unprecedented?
4: Well, no, I, I think he he's an owner that most of the time he puts people in place and lets them do their jobs. Now, we've obviously got several incidents over the last few years where that's not been the case, and he's he's taken power back. I think this part of of running a team on the field roster building is more Chris Ballard, Ed Dobbs, and Shane Steichen, the coaches. I think this is when they do the heavy lifting, sort of playing out what they want to do. And I think the owner is more involved when it comes time to moving forward with, okay, this is what we want to do. This This is – the financial parameters I don't I don't I really don't think the owner is that involved he, he's always involved because he, he he knows what he's doing and he does like to have his hands in this to some degree but this this point here is still more the coaches and personnels and the GMs and all those people it will be more upper management when it comes time to fixing budgetary terms to what you want to do and what you can do so you know, in in the grand scheme of things this this is not a, a a serious thing as far as him not being and maybe he is. Again we do we just don't know. But I, I just don't think this is a period right now that him being perhaps out of the loop is that big of a deal.
1: Mike hindsight's twenty twenty Mike Chapel our guest and you know it's probably a moot point now but I am curious because sometimes I like to to test my memory and find out if i'm remembering something you know sometimes you you remember something and it's embellished or you think like well actually that wasn't accurate over time am i correct in saying that during the drafting process and i know that that you know he sat and learned for a long time before what we've seen out of jordan love in green bay but his name was kind of floated around at times because it was during the period where the colts first would have started looking for a quarterback but chris ballard was not uh, necessarily sold on Jordan Love? Am I remembering that correctly?
4: I think that's fair. And again, that's it's been a while, so I really don't remember the particulars. And, and he always m- met with us when it when it worked post draft to kind of go over things. Yeah, I, I don't think he was bullish on him. Uh, and you know, Matthew Stafford and all those. I, I don't think so. But but yeah, it's. I mean, th- there's a lot of people that might be, be rethinking their evaluation of. Of, of Jordan Love after the way the way he's playing, and that's why you hope to high heavens that you've got it right with with Richardson because it, it's, it makes everything easier when that's not a position you're dealing with. I mean, we talked well. We talked to Chris Ballard last week. It was, you know, when we're sitting there with him last year at this time, he had no head coach or, or quarterback, so it just makes things. When you can when you can cross those two things off of your your list, uh, hopefully for a while, then it makes all the other pieces putting those in place a lot easier. But yeah, I don't think they were over the top enthralled with with Jordan Love, and you know maybe now in hindsight they should have been. But this is where we are but you know, Newport, like Green Bay.
1: It's it's a copycat league. In a lot of extents and this is probably the anomaly now with Jordan Love but but Green Bay has this kind of pattern right Jordan Love had to sit and watch Aaron Rodgers Aaron Rodgers had to sit and watch Brett Favre Brett Favre even though it wasn't necessarily in Green Bay sat and watched for a while you know got some reps in Atlanta but are we going to is it possible we go back to that the way it used to be where you draft a quarterback and he sits for a year or two or are the C.J. Strouds, the Anthony Richardson's, the like push them out and and unwind them? Is that still going to be the way it's going to be moving forward?
4: Oh, I think that's going to be the way moving forward. The only way the other the other one works is if you've got the guy, and it's clear that in a year or two he's going to be gone. And then, oh by the way, you've got to have somebody there to to step in to, to groom for a year or two. You know, I I'm guessing that Jordan Love sat a little bit longer. Then would have been ideal, you know. Trey Lance didn't work out, but that was sort of the plan there. So yeah, it, it's it's just you have to have things, you know. The dominoes have to be in place to make that work. And primarily, having the guy, you know, there was there was always talk that Bob Kravitz always used to laugh about is well, oh, you, you draft Andrew Luck and let him play a couple of years behind Peyton, and then you move on. No, yeah, that was that was never going to work on a lot of levels for a lot of reasons. But I guess that's ideal if you, if you can afford to do that, and and you've also got to be in position to to I don't want to say to invest a year or two in a draft pick, a high draft pick. That's not going to play for you. Now that's that's certainly taking the long term approach, which that that's that's ideal. It really is. I just think that most teams aren't able to do that. That's why you see you draft a guy. Top four, and these guys play right away, and, and you just hope that you've got the right one. And you know, with all the changes in the AFC South, you know, I thought we got a a decent look at Richardson. A small sample size, four games, is you know hardly definitive, but I feel better about him than I do like Will Levis in Tennessee, uh, just from from what I saw and, and what. How he sort of exceeded expectations. CJ Stroud's off the charts. Bryce Young. Do you have any idea what you've got? I, I don't think they do. So yeah, I I, I think it's going to be just by the way that things are set up is with the top, you know, the top of the draft is always is generally teams that need quarterbacks, and if the, if they if they're not if they if they don't need it, somebody below them is going to come up and get that pick. So. You, a lot of things have to go right. And then obviously you've got it when you, when you pick a guy, you know, Lamar Jackson, what was he? 32. Well, then it's, it, it's, he's, he, you, you're hoping he exceeds his draft position because that, that's what you're, that's what you're looking for. So, but I still think this is going to be a, a, a select and, and plug and play league just because teams at the top of the draft are going to need the guy and are going to, Needing to the point that they can't let him sit for a year or two. It's just the, the, the makeup of the league.
2: The Dean, Mike Chapel of Fox 9 and CBS 4 covering all things Colts. Nice enough to take some time with us. Chap, which of the following statements is more unfair regarding maybe overreaction to this season, overreaction to what's happened in the postseason so far regarding Chris Ballard and his drafting acumen? Which statement is more unfair? Because I'd argue they probably both are man, you could have traded up to get C.J. Stroud, or, man, you took Evan Hole in the fifth round and a pick later Puka Nakua goes.
4: Yeah, boy, I, I have a hard time with revisionist history thinking who you take, could have taken in round five. Uh, I, I really think that's that's a reach. That's like, you know, well, if you thought Robert Matzos was that good, why did you wait until right. what was right. it the fifth or sixth round, take him in the second round, whatever. So, yeah, I would say the second one is more unfair because – you know, it, it, it's like the Tom Brady argument. What was he uh, one ninety nine right. in round six? That, that means the Patriots passed four or five times, so they didn't know what they had. So, so yeah, that I I, I would say the second one is is most unfair, but it's all it's always great discussing uh, who you could have, who you should have after the fact. But uh, that's why that's why I think that's why you guys have got to show a lot of times
1: before you, you can come
4: up with it and say, you know, what they could have done, you know, what they could have done on fourth and one, whatever. So but that, that's that's what makes most of the time the media environment so entertaining is is you can have these discussions without people trying to rip the eyes out of each other. It's it's, it's interesting dialogue. But you're always, it's always risky when you start looking what you could have and should have done.
2: On a more serious note, Michael Pittman Jr.'s comments either last week or in the past 10 days regarding he wants to explore all his options. I thought it was a very professional way for him to handle all of that. You'd expect nothing less. But when the Colts have a tag, for those that maybe have the ability to tag him, for those that don't follow as closely these early negotiations that happen, when he says he wants to explore all of his options – how much of that is, even though the franchise tag could be looming, his agents working and, and you know behind closed doors and trying to find out where his market value is.
4: Oh, and they and they do need to figure out where his value is. Uh, they uh, Pittman and and his his agents and his dad and all the influence he'll have, and it's really hard. What what we're going to weigh, we meaning I guess the the Colts and everybody is. Is what is his value on the market, but what is his value to you? And I could almost argue that his value to the Colts is more than his value on the market. Uh, which which I, I don't know where you start negotiating. Well, you start at the franchise tag, which is twenty one seven. Which you know, it, it's really crazy. He, you know, and of all the things about Michael Pittman that, that I really really like, I think he's a cool guy. He he's a businessman. He will not give these guys a, a, a hometown discount, which he shouldn't. He shouldn't. You, get, you know, this this is this is his lottery contract. You you gotta you gotta get what you can get. But I, I think, and, and I've talked to Rick Venturi about this, and we sort of disagree, but we agree that you you want him to you want as a one him to be more. You want more of a deep threat and more, you know. Getting off the line and, and you're not like Rick says you're you're really making your hay between the, the hash marks, but this is what he is, and he is what he is. And you know, it was 109 catches with fifth, but the yardage was gosh 20 or 25 or 27, whatever it was. You want more, but how much of that is a, is a, is a reflection of the offense the last several years not pushing the ball down the field? Can he be more with Richardson? But his value, if I'm Pittman, when people say, What's your value to the Colts? you slip in the Atlanta tape when the offense simply could not operate without him. Uh, and maybe that's an, an exaggeration, but gosh, we, we, we saw how bad they were that day on offense. Uh, and then what's your plan B? Okay, say, Yeah, we're not going to pay 20, 25000000 million. We're just not going to do it. Well, then what's your plan B? It's not on the roster. So you're going to take another high pick and use it. It's probably it's probably going to be another good draft for receivers. If you go out and try to find a, a veteran free agent, he's going to cost you. If he's that good and he's going to be a one, he's going to cost you, you know, mid-20s. So, you know, it's always easier to overpay for your own. But it's I like his position. That's why he really didn't, didn't make noise this year because he knew what the market was. <laughs> and if he stayed healthy. He he's gonna get paid. He just is. I I tend to think the Colts are gonna kinda swallow hard and pay what it takes to keep him because it was value to the team.
1: <laughs> Mike Chappell is our guest from CBS Four and Fox fifty nine. Chap now that you've gotten a chance to you know, Chris Ballard talked to the local media, um, is there an area that now that the dust has settled That maybe when he inventories his roster, that he realizes that initially, like at the end of the year, the knee jerk was like, this is a major area of need that now that like once calmer heads prevail, they go, you know, maybe we're not as bad there as we thought. Or I guess conversely, is there an area that seemed like it was pretty good for the Colts, but now that he gets a chance to do a deep dive, he realizes might be a more glaring need than initially assessed.
4: Oh, I think it's the area that that they knew all along was going to be a, an issue. I won't say a problem, but an issue, and that's the secondary cornerback safety. They knew they, you know, it's not like they they went out there in September and said, "Holy crap, we're we're young and inexperienced in the secondary." You no, know, that that's what they expected. That's what they they decided they were going to do from the, from the jump, and then things just sort of worked against them. You know, they beginning with Isaiah Rodgers whenever that was in June or July. I, those months fade but then you have injuries Dallas Flowers and then Juju Brents who had just a awful season as far as development because of the injuries and he couldn't practice I think they just thought yeah that we thought we would be okay if we were healthy and these guys would grow but injuries kind of kept the continuity and the development you know at, at not the pace they had hoped so I still think they think at the end of this season is they need more back there, a corner. Uh, and Kenny, Moore, you know, Kenny Moore's a free agent uh, safety. You know, Julian Blackman's a free agent, and that's another interesting one because he, when he plays, he's pretty good, and he's had injury issues. So, you no, know, I, I think the ones in receiver, with even even bringing Pittman back, they need another receiver. Uh, it's really going to be interesting how. Reggie Wayne and 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 Jim uh, Colbert, the, the coordinator, view Alec Pierce. W- w- was he was he not effective because of Alec Pierce, or was he not effective because they didn't throw the ball deep to him? I mean, I I, I can think of five, six, seven, ten ten plays where he's, he's 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 beat his guy and he's running deep, and the quarterback doesn't get him the ball for whatever reason, for whatever reason. So, how much of this was an Alec? Pierce' problem. How much of it this was a Colts' problem? And but even even with that, they, I just think they need that number two guy. They just need a two that you're gonna you know, and you're gonna pay for a, a quality veteran. You just are. But so much we, we talked last year with with going into last year with Richardson is so much of your roster building has to be around giving him as much as you can personnel wise, supporting cast wise. As much as you can, as much as the the, the roster budget allows, and that, that's why you know retaining Taylor is important. Can you imagine? You know, they played one play together, Taylor and Richard, in one play. I can still see it was like it was like a pitch to the left. For, I don't know, it was three yards. But what what they could do, and then you had Pittman, and then you add you know the tight ends, or you know maybe that's another area you look at in the offseason. But whatever you do, you need to make sure that the quarterback. Has people around him that make his job easier, uh, you know, re- receiving and running and all that stuff. And the line really had a major bounce back season. So, yeah, I, I, I think that the, the, the issues, areas of issues that they had, I don't, I don't, think something jumped out at him and said, "Holy crap! I didn't anticipate that." Defensive line was really good. Offensive line was really good. Linebackers were good. You know, their linebacker they're a little short there now, personnel wise. But secondary and receiver, I think that, in my mind, those are the two areas that really need to be top of the priority list.
3: Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you.
2: The Dean Mike Chappell of Fox 9 and CBS 4 is our guest Chab, we need to wait for all the dust to settle and figure out what actual free agents are going to be out there, especially at wide receiver. But one of the critiques against Bauer the last couple of years, especially when it comes to free agency, and yes, there have been some good additions as well mixed in, but oftentimes he will spread out smaller money contracts to players that are average to below average that are available at that price for a reason versus taking like two or three big swings on guys that definitely deserve the money that might help your team in a tighter window when you look at anthony richardson the rookie contract and your point the clear need for another wide receiver within this offense sure they can go with the draft but they have corner to worry about too and so much of that depends on where they are on their board so let's just stick with free agency how likely do you think they are to really open the chamber here and take a couple of big swings or one big swing if necessary, to add another weapon for Anthony Richardson?
4: More likely uh, than in the past. I think a lot of, of things going into that is Richardson and, and Shane Steichen. I, mean, he, I think Chris was asked, maybe Kevin Bowen asked him, somebody did, Stephen Holder or somebody about, are you more likely to be, to alter your approach because of all these things, including Shane Steichen? And he said, hey, if there's a golden nugget out there, we'll cert- and, and it makes sense and is the right fit in the locker room, then, then perhaps they might be more receptive to doing that. Now they're not going to go out and lay out three major contracts. I, I, that's that would be so out of character. And then you, you need to wonder, you know, what somebody did with Chris Ballard and, and who's running the team. <laughs> but I, I, I do think they're going to be more more receptive to, to taking a swing or to a bigger swing. Again, you, you're right, and, and they've been re- they've been really good at finding. I guess the mid-level guys, Sampson, Ekuban was really a good addition uh, back in the day. You know, Jabal Shared and people like that, and they, they really. But, but they've not gone after the, the the major guy. I think in their mind, maybe they see more misses than hits when you really lay out the the monster contracts. But I do think they, because, of, because they they you know Chris Ballard mentioned that they should be, they should legitimately consider themselves a playoff contender and certainly a contender for the AFC South. And when that's, and that hasn't been the case a lot in the past, it sort of was with Matt Ryan because they really thought they were going to be better all the way around. But I, I think with the makeup of the roster and and the fact that you do that, you've got the rookie quarterback contract and you know, you've know you got 70 million in cap space, although with the Colts a lot of times it comes down more to cash than cap. It just does. And anymore, your your players want to get more money up front than they do deferred bonuses and all that. But I, but I just think in general they're going to be more receptive to, to going... With a, maybe one big guy, I don't know, but you, just because of the way you mentioned the golden nugget, if somebody's out there, and we think it's the right fit. They're not going to go. They're not going to go crazy. Well, Michael Pittman's not going to let him go crazy with his contract. And then, by the way, you've got Grover Stewart and you got Rigoberto Sanchez, which won't be a big contract in, in the total realm of things. Kenny Moore, you know, you want to ring back your own, but when you do that, it, it does take it does take resources and it takes you know. Upfront money, so, but I I do think we're going to see it a little bit different. But they're not going to be out there throwing money like, you know, like like they're printing it at the, at, at the complex. But I think they'll be more more aggressive.
1: Mike, finally, uh, and I don't know how much of this you're allowed to divulge, but um, in rel- el- in relatively elementary terms, because you are one who is involved in the process, and we now know that Reggie Wayne and Dwight Freeney are, uh, I believe, it's finalists or semi-finalists at this point for the Hall of Fame. Uh, what is the process itself, and and getting possibly one, if not both, of those guys eventually in? Like, <laughs> excuse me, what is the voting process? By that, I mean for those that are unfamiliar.
4: Yeah, they're they're what, what we call the final fifteen, and we're, we're having that discussion this week. Uh, and it's you know it's it's there's fifteen of us who who present these guys, each one from the local market. I guess fourteen because I'm doing Reggie and Dwight. And you you just you just kind of lay it out there, and then then we vote from fifteen to ten, and then from the ten we vote down to five, and it's just it's just a, uh, it's an argument. For, and, and everybody in that room, the player, the the fifteen finalists, they're just quality players. You don't get in there if, you, if you're just a guy, you know, if you just a jag, as they say. So it's and you only get you only get five you know, and people already think our oh, Antonio Gates is going to be a, going to be a guy that's, that means you get four. And we got with Dwight, we got three quality pass rushes with with him and Julius Peppers and Jared Allen. And then we've got Reggie and Tory Holt and Andre Johnson. So it's difficult. And, you know, I'm semi optimistic that one of them gets in. I, 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 and I, I don't know which one it'll be. I've talked to some people about each one of them and, Everybody's high on each one, and it's just—it's just difficult because to say that he didn't get in because he wasn't worthy, well that's not the case. It's just that our. So,
1: so you spell the case right? The other
4: guys were, were better
1: because you're the guy that covered them. You you kind of spell the case for the rest of the voters, right? And Correct. then and then the vote is done. Now this is where I get confused. So is it strictly? the top 5 vote getters get in or does it do they have to still meet a certain threshold of approval and it's possible that say only 2 get in and it's a maximum of 5 or is it it's definitively five? 5
4: it's a maximum of 5 and when you get to 5 they have to receive 80% of the vote okay so, so it's, it, it's not it's it's not a thumbs up thumbs down. It's you still have to get the, the required vote. Okay. So in other words, if in.
1: if you are if if you're the third highest vote getter, but you only got seventy seven percent, you are not in, right? You don't get in. Right. Gotcha. Okay.
4: And I've always taken the approach that if we go through all this, the meeting's is normally eight or nine hours. I mean, it's a long meeting. And if you can fight your way and get to the final five, I need a darn good reason not to vote yes. I I just do. Uh, because if, if nothing else, then that means that guy goes back into the hopper next year, right? And the one thing that we hate to have is is the, the backlog at receiver. We're getting at it defensive end. So again, and there been I'm telling you, there have been some people in that room who they they weren't going to vote for this guy come hell or high water. They just had, they just didn't believe in the person or whatever. I've never never felt that strong normally. There's, there's been three or four guys to get in over the last five years I, I still don't agree with. I just don't. But when they get to the final five, holy smokes, you've got to have a real good reason. And not only you, you need to have 20% of the room be against that player. So, But no, it, it's from 15 to 10 to 5, and, and then you vote yes or no on the five, and it's got to be 80%.
1: Chap, appreciate the time as always. Uh, get yourself a cold Coors Light and a glass of ice for your big meeting for nine hours when you're going over all of it. And uh, but we always appreciate the time. You guys stay in touch and stay warm. It's cold here on the beach, <laughs> cold and peach grove, baby. Mike Chapel, our guest
3: whether it's audiobooks or all time greatest hits long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali ribocyclob 200 milligrams at K I S Q A L and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you.
1: Tomorrow night is the big one. It will be Indiana and Purdue from assembly hall in the big 10 lot to talk about within the conference and joining us now on the program. And I'm sure he's thrilled to be doing so is Dave Revson of the big 10 network. Um, Dave, listen, I got to throw this out immediately because I I, I kind of get a kick out of it, but I think it's super cool. When I had reached out to you originally about the game being tomorrow night between Indiana and Purdue, you're like, hey, the only problem is we've got a busy day on Tuesday. And then I had to remind myself, that's right, the, the Washington head coaching announcement is a Big Ten related thing now. Does that still yeah. feel surreal to you kind of?
5: I would say a little bit. I mean, I think it'll feel less so when they're in the league, but I would actually say the national championship game for me, Jake, was a big part of that introduction. And we, you know, spent some time with the Washington players and members of the staff. And I talked to a bunch of fans and, you know, kind of introduced myself to some fans. I was waiting for an Uber and some older fans came out and, uh, you know, we were talking a little bit about the transition to the Big Ten so I think it seems more real now but to me I feel like it'll seem most real when they actually start competing but yeah I mean you know you kind of think about this higher and Jed fish I mean w- when he coaches his first conference game in Washington it's going to be a Big Ten game so it it certainly makes sense for it to be something that we cover and, and we're going to
1: I just think it's so cool man I mean I'll be honest with you I know that people Dave you know are like the conference realignment but Washington, Oregon, UCLA, and USC, to me, and I mean this seriously, I don't know what better word to use, they're just four sexy athletic programs to me. Like I just think from both a football and basketball standpoint, each of them brings a cachet to the Big Ten that if you're an Indiana fan or Purdue fan, like why would you not want to go if you're going to do a travel game and get some buddies together and go to a place? I just think it's cool all the way around. Yeah, I'm with
5: you 100%. I mean, I think that we've already seen with Washington and Oregon in the football season, and to some extent, USC and UCLA, I understand both of them ultimately ended up kind of having disappointing years. But there's some buzz around both of those programs as well. And so, yeah, you get a little bit of a sense of of what they're going to bring. And uh, obviously, UCLA basketball's been a, a mess this year. It's a little strange to see it, actually. But, you know, historically, it's a good program with a really good coach, I feel like, ultimately they'll get it together. USC, you know, kind of the same way they're, they're scuffling maybe a little bit more than people expected. But I, I think that those, all four of those programs are going to bring a lot and in, in not just the major sports, but in the Olympic sports as well. I mean, you're talking about, you know, some of the greatest non-revenue sports programs in the country in some of those schools. So it's, it's exciting. I, I get that for kind of Big Ten traditionalists, that maybe it's stuff to wrap your head around but you know this is kind of this is where it's going and and whether or not the big 10 participated in it someone was someone was going to and so from the big 10's point of view you've got to find that the schools that make the most sense for you and and grab them and and that's what the conference did
1: so dave let's go to basketball in its current state in the big 10 i mentioned the fact indiana purdue i want to get to that but both those schools are realistically in the standings chasing a school that you guys are going to have on the Big Ten Network talking about Wisconsin. Um, Take me through the week Wisconsin has ahead and just in general, what it is about Wisconsin that has them playing at the level that now has even Purdue, who is a top-ranked team, looking up at them in the Big Ten standings.
5: Well, they're just a really good offensive team, Jake. I mean, they've made a huge jump from where they were last year I haven't looked up the latest numbers, but last year I know they were 140th in the nation in offensive efficiency, and when we had them on our air on Wednesday, they were 7th. So that's a pretty significant jump to go from 140th to 7th. Part of it is is they've been healthy all year, which they weren't really last year. And then they have just had an infusion of new talent. The, the most obvious one is A.J. Storr, who transferred from St. John's. He's just a different level athlete. I mean, if you've watched, there's been a couple occasions where Chucky Hepburn on the break has had A.J. Storr following him and has thrown it off the backboard for Storr to throw down for a dunk. Like, when did you see that? Yeah, you, you think about, like, Bo Ryan sitting in Palm Springs watching the game and saying, like, what is happening <laughs> with my program? But A.J. Storr's just different. I mean, he's really, really athletic. And so that's helped them a lot. And then they have a good freshman, John Blackwell, and then guys have gotten better. Like Max Klesman's having an unbelievable year. He's transferred from Wofford. He's an in-state kid who um, has just really played well for them. So it's it's kind of everything. Everyone came back and and they just seem to have good chemistry. And you know they always play well on the defensive end. The difference this year is, is they're just really good offensively. As far as the week ahead, they have Penn State and uh, then they have the Hoosiers at home. So pretty interesting. Uh, week for them, but they're uh, they're awfully good. They're going to be tough to catch for sure.
2: Dave Rebson of the Big Ten Network, nice enough to take some time with us. Dave, I wasn't going to go this route just yet, but since Jake brought up Wisconsin, I will. Does that mean, based on your analysis of Wisconsin, slash what you've seen from Indiana this year, and maybe that changes if they upset Purdue tomorrow night, but does that mean I should not hold my breath about Indiana getting a win in Madison for the first time since 98? <laughs>
5: Yeah, that's crazy, isn't it? I mean, it's just crazy to think about that, Jimmy. Um, it, I mean, it's, it, seems look, winning on the road in the Big Ten is just tough this year. And it's not just about Indiana or Purdue. We've seen Purdue obviously go down to, to Northwestern and Nebraska. The Big Ten road teams have only won nine of 37 conference games, the lowest percentage of any conference in the country. So, it's it's not just IU struggles; it's everyone's struggles, and, and we get it. I mean, historically, you know, first of all, these are just great venues with really good fan bases. The games are attended. You know, most Big Ten games are sold out. I mean, that that makes it hard for a visiting team. Uh, I, yeah, I, w- whether I would hold your breath or not, I don't know. I mean, Northwestern had them. You know, it's tie game with three and a half minutes to go in Madison. I think maybe even less than that tie game, and then Wisconsin scored the last eight points on. Saturday, so I don't think it's out of the question that IU could beat them there. They they would just have to play really well.
2: I realize that, and I don't want this to be an analysis of my psychosis now, but I understand I'm crazy for already looking at net and trying to figure out like where things are going to be at the tournament. When in reality, a lot of people, you know, take the more sane approach that hey, Valentine's Day rolls around, and then you can dive into that. That said, when you look around the Big Ten as a whole, is it still ripe of opportunities within itself? To produce especially in conference play, plenty of tournament bids, or how do you view the overall health of the conference at this still albeit in 2024 we flipped the calendar, but albeit this early juncture of conference play?
5: Well, I don't think there are many teams that you would look at, Jimmy, and just say like they're clearly not a tournament team this year, in other words, like Minnesota, we knew pretty early on last year, okay, you know this just this isn't happening for these guys this year. I don't think there are many that I would look at this year and say that about. Um, I had Rutgers yesterday against Michigan State. They've got a couple of players who, who may get eligible here. Uh, one coming off an injury, and then one's an eligibility issue that I think they believe can help them. But I mean, they'd probably be like that one team that you'd look at and say, I don't know. Or, yeah, I guess Michigan probably too would would be uh, one. Penn State maybe. So I, you know, I guess there are a few. Now I'm talking myself into a few. But then I I guess the rest of them, like, so if you say those three are going to have a really hard time having any shot, then you got 11 who I think are at least in the conversation. Like, I know a lot of people have probably written off Maryland, but they went to Illinois and won yesterday and looked really good doing it. You know, Minnesota is way improved. Nebraska is a much better team than they were a year ago. So I think you kind of go down that that list of teams and you say – you know, how many would be in right now? I don't think it's a huge number. I mean, I think it's probably like six or seven. But how many could get in? Like, yeah, I think 11 could, you know, have an argument where if everything goes well here, kind of going forward, that they'd have a good chance to make
1: it. Dave, I think there were a lot of people. Dave Revson of the Big Ten Network, are guests. I think there were a lot of people when Indiana went and kind of laid an egg at Nebraska that maybe snickered about that. Then Purdue goes there, and you see, and then I, it's time to admit and realize Fred Hoiberg's got himself a team, and they can shoot the basketball. I mean, when they can shoot the ball the way they they got a chance in any game, right?
5: Yeah, I agree. I mean, they're a really good offensive team. I, I think Rink Mahast, who's a, their big guy who transferred from Bradley, has been a huge addition for them. He just really fits with what they do. You know, Fred likes to put guys at the elbow and and use them as kind of almost a, a point center and Rick Mass does that as well as anyone. He's second on the team in assists. He's really, really good at that. And, and he can stretch a defense and shoot it. Obviously, Kasei Tominaga is the headliner on that. I mean, just a really dynamic, fun player to watch. But I would say, like, where they've really improved over these last couple of years is on the defensive end. Like, their defensive mindset is so different than it was two years ago. And in talking to Fred, I think he just kind of realized – a couple of years ago, like, if we're going to win in this league, we just have to be tougher. You're just not going to be able to run up and down the court and shoot eight seconds into the shot clock in the Big Ten and then come down and defend somewhat lackadaisically and win. It, it just isn't a formula in this league. And and so he went out and got guys who are tough. I mean, Juwan Gary is a tough dude. He last year at Emmanuel Bandemil got hurt, but but was in that same mode. So I think that has been a huge difference. I know you watch them, and yes, it's the offense that pops out. But I think the defense, the defensive mentality, and that change over the last two years has been huge. And yeah, like they're you know they're legit. They're going to have to figure out ways to win conference games on the road. They they did get a great win at K State earlier this year, but but have struggled away from home in conference play. But you go into Lincoln, and it's a supercharged atmosphere. They're really passionate. It's a tough place to win, as as teams have found out, as you noted.
1: Dave give me your impression of both Indiana and Purdue I mean since they're playing each other I guess we can kind of wrap that into one but you know obviously Purdue Purdue we know really good you know those two games I look at their two losses in the conference and I, and I kind of write it up more about two teams shooting the ball really well on those given nights but yep. uh, you know what's Indiana got to do I guess and that's been a weakness for Indiana so does Indiana can Indiana hang with Purdue even though it's at home
5: Yeah, I think they can. I mean, again, we we go to the atmospheres and, you know, there's few places tougher to play for an opponent than Assembly Hall. And you throw in the rivalry component of it. I absolutely think Indiana, if they play well, can hang with them. Um, Can they beat them? Yeah. I mean, again, like if Nebraska and Northwestern beat them, I I don't see why Indiana can't beat them. Would I predict that they would? No. You know, I I think for some of the reasons that you outlined – Jake. Like I, I, you know, they're going to have to shoot the ball a lot better. Like part of the way to beat them is to shoot it well. And and I was talking to Matt Painter. I had their game on Saturday, and Matt was saying, you know, we really felt like against Nebraska, they made 14 threes. We felt like we defended ten of them really well, but they just have shot makers. They just have guys who can hit contested threes. And I'm not sure that IU has a ton of those guys. So that's the challenge. And then obviously defending on the interior, it, it's just a different. It's a different matchup for Indiana's bigs. Like, Indiana's front line, as you guys know, is is really good. I mean, it's the strength of their team with, with Purdue and Ware and Mbaco. It's certainly better than their backcourt. But can he match up with the physicality of Zach Eady? I mean, he just wears people down. And Indiana's bigs are a different kind of big, a different kind of skill big than Zach is. But, but the strategy for teams when they go up against Zach is – Get him running, you know, put him in ball screens, put him in situations where he's got to chase your big guy around. And and so that'll be the trade-off there is can you stretch the floor a little bit if he is guarding Renew? Can he step out and and hit – or, or, you know, even if he's guarding where, can he step out and and hit threes? Either one of those guys has shown this year they're good three-point shooters. So we'll see. I mean, again, I, I, I wouldn't hold your breath if you're an Indiana fan. But, man, it's a great rivalry, and rivalry games just have a way of, of playing out in a close manner and going down to the wire.
1: Uh, lastly, like I would mentioned, Wisconsin and Penn State's going to be on the Big Ten Network tomorrow night as well. Dave, we know about the games that you guys do and the studio work that you do in breaking down both the men and women's side of basketball for the Big Ten. But before we let you go, tell me about something that's happening at the Big Ten Network from a programming standpoint, aside from those obvious that people are aware of, that you're excited about, that you think, man, if people knew about this, they would enjoy watching it, be it a feature or something you guys have been working on, aside from just games itself that's pretty cool stuff?
5: Well, I mean, I know it's been going on for a long time, Jake, but I I beat the drum for the journey a lot. I I just think it's the best thing that we do as a network. Um, If if people haven't sampled it, I just think you should watch it. The storytelling is unbelievable. It it really helps you get to know the student athletes. There's so many of these players with just amazing, amazing individual stories. You know, whether it's coming from a small village in Africa and now helping to, you know, build a a school there. I mean, you know that like that's not a that's not a made up story, right? Like that is something that a player in our league, Madi Sissoko, has done. Um, like, I just think that's amazing. And you get to know those stories, you, you you find out about individual heartbreak that players have had. I mean, Lance Jones, they, they did a great piece on him and, you know, lost his father uh, to complications, I want to say from a stroke. Um, and it was right after he committed to Purdue. And, and it was just, um, you know, it's, it's heartbreaking, but you understand, you know, kind of how much this is meant to him. I, I just think stories like that, that the storytelling on it's phenomenal. And, I think that's really a pillar of our network is is telling these stories and helping people get to know these teams and, and get to know these players in a way that, that other networks can't do because it's just not part of their mission.
1: Dave, we always appreciate the time. I know it's a busy time, so appreciate it again. Wisconsin-Penn State tomorrow night, Big Ten Network, 9 o'clock tip is when that game will be airing. Appreciate it, Dave.
5: Always have time for you. Thanks, Jake. Thanks, I Jimmy. Take-
1: appreciate it. Dave Repson of the Big Ten Network.
3: Whether it's audiobooks or all time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclib 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you.
2: Welcome back to querying company. Massive weekend for Super Wild Card Weekend, and it's not done yet with two matchups still to go today. Now, what's the difference between a Super Wild Card Weekend and Wild Card Weekend? Because without the super, you don't realize how big the stakes are, Jake. And branding. Branding is always very important. Okay. So, super wild card weekend, still underway with two games to go today. Joining us now, he covers the NFL for the athletic. He's been around covering the sport for more than 25 seasons. He is Mike Sando of The Athletic. Mike, thanks for making some time for us as always. And as we jump right into things, Detroit clearly is the story of the weekend, given the playoff drought, all the cities gone through the 0-16 season. And I have no doubt we'll get to this during the conversation. But I'd like you to kind of settle a, a minor debate that we've had during the breaks when looking back at Super Wild Card Weekend, at least the Saturday and Sunday games. Whose rookie quarterback was more captivating over the weekend? Was it C.J. Stroud and what he did to the Browns, or was it Jordan Love and some of those exquisite throws that he made against that Dallas defense? Oh, well, right, Love's not fight, a rookie, fight, so fight. we got
6: to give it to Stroud. Right. I know what you mean. Yes, I know you. what you mean. Just thank as you. the impressive debut, um, <laughs> to me, it's just hard to beat Stroud. I, I just when you look at what that organization was, right? I mean, there's Jordan Love had his own challenges taking over, you know, for a legend in Aaron Rodgers, but the Packers have been just a, 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 such a stable franchise for so long. I think we underestimate how hard it is to come into a place like Houston, where they were 11, 38, and one the previous three years, where before the year, people were thinking they were going to be the last team in the AFC. And to carry that as a quarterback who's really making the difference in the games. It's not like they're just throwing the ball uh 18 times a game and leaning on this incredible run game and the defense and all of that. Uh he has really shown that he can do it as the leader of the team with things running through him for the whole year. I think CJ Stroud was consistently good the whole year. Jordan Love kind of came on late and then yes, what a great win. Uh, for him, but the Cowboys always lose in the playoffs. So <laughs> I think you know to do to do what to do what Jordan Le, or what CJ Stroud did against the number one statistical defense in the league in Cleveland and make them look silly. Uh, I don't think there's been a rookie. I couldn't find another rookie season as impressive as this one in the history of the game. Has CJ
1: Stroud, Mike, and maybe the answer here is a little of both. But the way that Houston has has played of late is that because CJ Stroud and his composure and leadership as a quarterback is kind of lifting the roster around him or as very good as he is and there's no doubt he's a great player he's great at Ohio State I loved him coming into the draft but has has Houston's supporting cast shown itself to be to have been underappreciated and
6: they are playing at a stability that is allowing his comfort level yeah, well, I think it, there's definitely both those things work together. There's no doubt that they've been better, and you know, certainly they're they're wide receivers that you know people weren't talking about before the year, and, and just other players in their roster. I think there's no question their roster um, is better than you know we thought. But I think when you have when you have a quarterback that the whole team believes in, it's kind of like having a great kick returner. When you got a great kick returner, it's amazing how good the blocking is, right? Everyone's out there doing their best because they know this guy might break it the whole time, right, or any play. I think when you have a great quarterback or a good quarterback that people believe in, it does lift your team, and you get the most out of guys. They're playing knowing they've got a chance every week. They could win. They could advance in the playoffs. So they go hand in hand. No quarterback does it all by himself. But when you have a guy you can believe in, I think it does raise the level.
1: So, Mike, let's talk about Mike Sando, who is the senior writer for the NFL, covering the NFL for the Athletic. Joins us before we get back into some of the different matchups within the playoffs. I wanted to ask just kind of your overall assessment or autopsy of Indianapolis in the fact that you know we know they were close because it came down to the last game, and Houston came in here and and took that spot. But what are the areas that you look at for the Colts that that you feel like? Are the thing holding them back? And are they areas that are quick fixes in the NFL or are they areas that are the hardest to figure out?
6: Um, no, I think we're going to find out what they have at quarterback. We saw flashes, so you're not going to change that. I think we uh, liked, in general, what we saw from the new head coach in terms of his ability to, you know, game plan or scheme or, or put his players in good position. So I feel pretty good about that. You would have said coming into the year the offensive line was going to be a big concern, but I think they seem to be better this year. So I don't see a huge uh, fatal flaw for the team. I think they have stayed the course, you know, defensively, scheme wise for a while now, and you'd like to probably see that element, uh, uh, you know, lift itself, I think, Uh, and and so that could be, you know, just a little bit of a question mark for them, but I think in general, uh, you're pleased with what happened this season, especially from where they had been before, and now you just want to see how much it can be elevated by having the quarterback healthy and in the system for a whole year, which is a big deal.
2: Mike, I understand that this might be a gray area with my question because I don't understand the, the intricacies necessary, necessarily of the Hall of Fame process. But as a Hall of Fame selector in your role, when you look at this class, and of course the Colts have two that are in the running in Reggie Wayne and Dwight Freeney. When you look at the class as a whole, what, what stands out to you the most or, or what are you able to say about the class as they continue to trim down towards who will ultimately be inducted this year?
6: Yeah, you know, I think you're always on the. It's always on your radar of who are the new guys in there that are going to make it for sure. So you would say because if there's only five slots, right, for the modern era, so you'd probably say Julius Peppers and Antonio Gates were so good when they played that it would be surprising if they didn't go right in, right? Uh, so we're really talking about three spots, <laughs> and that's how you know that's why some of these receivers keep canceling each other out, whether it's Tory Holt or Andre Johnson or Reggie Wayne, um, you know, I may like two of them, you may like two of them the best, right? And you're not going to name them all on your ballot. So the votes get split a little bit, even though everybody likes all of them and they're all going to get in. I think all three of those guys are going to get in. It just makes it super difficult uh, mathematically. It's really kind of a math equation when you have that many candidates, 15 and really legitimately, let's just say there's 13 candidates if we're going to put those other two guys in for three slots. Well, there's an endless number of combinations that could make it, and you don't really know how it's going to break uh, you know, in the, in the meeting room. Sometimes you're a little bit surprised. So I'm hopeful. I hope one of those receivers makes it in at least one because uh, then I feel like we've made progress and we can get them all in eventually.
1: Between Freeney and Wayne, Mike, which one do you feel like was more of like a separator between themselves and their contemporaries yeah. when they were playing.
6: Well, uh, my perception of how Freeney is perceived may give him a slight edge because I think I think it's a little bit of a mistake when people do this. But when when a receiver plays with a great quarterback, people people give the quarterback some of the credit. I don't buy that a great deal. I feel like the great receivers get their numbers, unless they just have a terrible quarterback, the great receivers get their numbers. And and so when a Devontae Adams goes to play with Derek Carr and the Raiders, you couldn't tell his numbers different from when he was with Rodgers. They look identical. Now, when he plays with Aiden O'Connell, yeah. That's different, right? When Reggie Wayne plays with Curtis Painter, right, it's different. But when you just have a decent starting quarterback, to me, the receivers get their numbers. So that may be a little bit unfair with with uh, Reggie Wayne uh, on there. But, you know, that's just a little bit of my perception of how some might see it.
1: Does Reggie Wayne benefit from, and perhaps, Mike, this is esoteric to those of us that covered him game in and game out, right? But does he benefit or will it help him? That he kind of extended his career by, I guess, evolving as a receiver. He went from a behind the defense number two guy, admittedly, with Marvin Harrison there. And people say, well, he was Alvin Harper. He was a guy that had Marvin Harrison there. But then once Marvin Harrison's gone, Reggie Wayne not only becomes a primary, but he extends his career by, towards the end, being a really good, almost possession receiver. For Andrew Luck. So he played multiple facets of the position over the course of his career. Is that an observation that only somebody who covered the Colts would make, or would voters be able to see that?
6: Uh, it, that may be more nuanced for. So in this case, like Mike Chappell's going to give the case for him. Uh, so Mike would know that. Mike would bring that up, and Mike would stress that in the room because he's going to get. The way it works is we're going to go around the room and. And so when it's time for Reggie Wayne, um, I believe it's Chap who's going to do it, will have five minutes, right? He'll give a five-minute speech, uh, and then he'll hit on those types of points, and then it'll be open up for discussion. And if anybody else wants to say anything, there's 50 people. We were going to meet in person. That's going to be a Zoom because of the weather situation. But uh, you'll be able to chime in, right? I can bring up something like that. Like I did a study of all of the wide receivers in history and just evaluating their their best seasons against each other. So when I did that, you know, Reggie Wayne came in at number 10 in the history of the game. So clearly we've got the right guy, right? We've got the right guys here now. Uh, You know, Holt and Andre Johnson were up there too. So we've got the right guys. Each one has their own little nuances like that. In the end, does something like that, that you mentioned, is that going to elevate over the little nuance thing for Torrey Holt or Andre Johnson? Probably not. That's why it's so hard.
2: Mike Sando of The Athletic is our guest. Mike, I know you had a piece last week that was kind of a cheat sheet for where the coaching carousel kind of was, openings or likely openings that might be there. When you look around the NFL, what is your observation at this point, kind of five days later on that carousel, and is it a foregone conclusion in your mind that Mike McCarthy is going to be out the door?
6: Well, yeah, just about every one of them that I listed hit, uh, which i that was, uh, you know, I wasn't predicting they were all going to hit. But it seems like just about all of those places, uh, except for Dallas, maybe, which I put on the radar, um, have hit. I—I don't know what the path forward is for the Cowboys because Jerry Jones has to somehow change the narrative when he has failure. He's the common denominator through all of the failure. He's the one who got rid of Jimmy Johnson and and has become the star of the Cowboys circus really for 30 years. And so it doesn't matter if it's Tony Romo or Dak Prescott or Jason Garrett or Bill Parcells or Wade Phillips or Mike McCarthy. It seems like they always build up the expectations real high, market the team and then fall flat in the big moments when they're really exposed as not being what they were built up to be. So, yeah, does Dak and does McCarthy? Do they bear some responsibility for this game? Of course. I mean, we got to grade them. Dak Prescott throwing interceptions wasn't good. But I just—I don't know. What do you change that you haven't changed before? Right? What do you do? What's the pivot?
1: You get the owner to watch from the sidelines, right? And you put yeah,
6: you, you put a muzzle on him. It's I, hard to—you can never—you can't. The owner can do whatever he wants to do, and this is clearly the path that Jerry wanted. Right, he wanted to be the star, so here you go. But it means, you know, it, it means that it's always going to be difficult to coach his team.
1: I saw yesterday, Mike. You know, ten thousand different people. You know, making jokes about Bill, Bill Belichick was probably already like in Plano. You know, waiting for the phone call. I, I don't personally think. And my my buddy Mac Engel, who writes for the Fort Worth Star Telegram, seems to to think this. He would know it better than I. But. That the Bill Belichick Jerry Jones thing just would not work, and Belichick would not
6: be a candidate there if McCarthy is relieved yeah. of his duties. You agree with that? I, I do. I, I don't see how it makes sense. Now that being said, I have heard a number. I you know I talk to people in front offices around the league and have candid conversations. Who and some of them say, "Hey, that's my sleeper pick," and I just it doesn't doesn't make sense to me. Uh, now Bill Parcells did it. You know, it went there and, and tried it. So I don't know. You know, the the only thing that would be interesting to me is. I wrote about this in my column today. You know, these owners, and even to some extent these power coaches, sometimes when they've been in one situation, they then go to a different situation after that. So the only appeal for me for Belichick would be, hey, did he feel in some way that he was, uh, you know, held back or something in in New England uh, in in some way in terms of, he mentioned before the season cash spending. Wasn't that kind of weird? Remember He mentioned about where they were in cash, and that's the type of detail Bill Belichick would never say. And then Robert Kraft kind of came back after that and pushed back. So does he feel like, hey, if I had a blank check, if I could get, you know, we could do even more, uh, and that's why a Jerry could be appealing? Or is it just more like, hey, is someone trying to put that out there because he really wants to raise the price for Arthur Blank, right? Uh, And he's going to end up there. Hard to tell. Long time a
3: whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you.
2: Fell writer Mike Sando is our guest. You can find his coverage on The Athletic, including his most recent piece, Sando's Pick 6, which dives into a lot of what occurred over Wildcard Weekend and a dive as well into the Dolphins, what they might have to do with Tua Tunga-Vailoa, going big picture with Super Wild Card Weekend, Mike. Oftentimes we forget, especially in today's society, about the top seeds that are waiting in Baltimore and San Francisco. When you look at what's happened to this point with them waiting in the wings for who they're going to play and all the drama that Super Wild Card Weekend has provided, anything change in terms of, well, no, the Ravens and the Niners are the clubhouse leaders versus no, this team or this team might be able to kind of turn it upside down and get themselves that much closer to Vegas in the Super Bowl. I thought it fell pretty
6: well for the number one seeds. You know, I, I think that there was some expectation among a lot of us that if one of those AFC North teams made it through like Cleveland, that they could give Baltimore a tougher go. They already won at Baltimore. They know how to play them. Those sorts of things. So I think we take that out of the equation for the Ravens. And yeah, they'll have a you know they'll have a, a tough matchup but i think it's different when it, if it was going to be a cleveland so that was nice i think for them and then i think for the for the 49ers getting the packers uh you know as a 7 seed that's a good matchup for them uh with the, where the packers are right on defense I, they probably would have beat the cowboys too but sometimes when you play the rematch right maybe dallas has a better plan the second time around or things go differently they have a little bit of confidence so i i feel like this is a good a great job by green bay they're a young team playing with a lot of energy they may give the 49ers a go but i think the 49ers have to feel great about their ability coming off a rest with cal shanahan scheming that green bay defense uh to advance
1: mike i'm all in on the lions dream right i I mean i'm not like a lions fan per se but but if you have no rooting interest how can you not kind of appreciate that story uh tell me it's not going to end we're going to get another week of lions magic right well, we are next week. We know. Well, they, but I mean, they, I'm saying like they're they're going to get another win. I'm saying, right?
6: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I you know I don't know. I feel like the Lions. Um, you know they they've lost some games now too. You know, and they lost to teams like Seattle, and and they uh, you know got blown out by Baltimore. So I feel like they're good, but I don't feel like they're beat San Francisco good in the right. end. So you know we'll we'll see if they can get another one out of this thing. Uh, they probably will because of you know who's left, <laughs> uh, and that'll be great for them. What's going on with Philly? I,
1: I, I mean, Philly, like from I don't know November to now, is just seemingly a completely different team. What's going yeah. on with the Eagles?
6: Well, I was really impressed with them early in the year for winning when they didn't seem like they should have. Uh, and sometimes you are ten and one, but it really kind of felt like a. Six and five or seven and four. So, uh, you know, their defense has just really fallen apart. I think uh, the burden on the quarterback and the burden on the offense probably got a bit much for them. Uh, I think they've worn down some as the season went along, and they just seem to have lost some of their uh, togetherness or continuity. We've seen it's felt like they've splintered a little bit. Um, I don't think the head coach has done a great job of keeping them together as this has gone. He's been a little bit all over the place himself. We've seen that after some of the games when he's winning, and he's running through the tunnel and you know, almost saluting the fans. I feel like they've just been a little bit out of control uh, uh, this season, and so that's a really interesting place because they've been to the Super Bowl with this group, but you know that's a front office and ownership group that doesn't wait around either. So Not predicting anything, but like I said before the Dallas game, there's a final score in all of these games that can change things, right? And that may have been the final score for Mike McCarthy. Is there one for Philly in this game against Tampa? We'll see.
2: Mike Sando covers the NFL for the Athletic. Mike, in your preview piece the last week or the week before, you asked the question, can Kansas City awaken its offense? Have you seen enough from what Rasheed Rice has meant to them the last couple of weeks and their ability to run the ball with Isaiah Pacheco as a complimentary piece to Travis Kelsey? Is that enough to say, yes, it has awakened, or do you still need to see more from them as yeah. they want to make a run?
6: I think you need to see a little bit more because of the team they were playing, the Dolphins were so injured, but I think it's a real positive sign. Uh, you know, I, you've wondered where this has been. Some of it is Rasheed Rice development, but... I also just can't help but think with this team, they've been to the mountaintop so many times. Did they really need to have a back against the wall or, or a real game with real stakes uh, to to maybe be a little bit more focused and play with a little bit more attention to detail? Because this performance felt like that, and it felt a little bit more like the Chiefs. So I do I do read a lot into it. I think it's a great sign for them, but um, you probably do need to see it another week against you know better defensive resistance to think that it's going to continue all the way through the playoffs mike
1: Sando, senior nfl writer for the athletic i have an nfl trivia question i'm putting you on the spot
6: are you ready oh yeah
1: you tell me what doug long and paul ward have in common doug long and paul ward wow
6: why should i know this well i don't know that you should actually because i could be um, i could be wrong in this regard they- too Yeah, those are like long ago players, right?
1: Or correct, they are. Um, Like, is it? Yeah. um, Both of them, by my count. Now there are two other guys: Sam Adams and Kevin Sugarman. Those names ring anything to you? Yeah, no, I know Sam. I I covered Sam when he was with the Seahawks. Okay, Uh, those are the only four guys to come out of Whitworth. Now, am I correct in saying you went to Whitworth, Ah, or did I totally misread that?
6: Good call. No, well. Sam Adams is not the Sam Adams I covered. Sam Adams, uh, that's funny.
1: <laughs> now this is not the beer <laughs> we guy. Out. This is not the beer guy either. Um,
6: no, I was thinking Sam Adams. You know, he played at like Texas A&M, or okay. right? I mean, he he was a big time defensive tackle for the Seahawks. No, Sam Adams and Kevin a, uh, Sugarman
1: are Canadian football league guys. Doug Long and Paul Ward played in the NFL.
6: Well, there's one more though. There was a Chiefs tight end in the last. Uh, Ten years, maybe ten or fifteen years. He he, he was on the Chiefs, um, who went there too. But that's good trivia. That's before my time. So I was there, I was there late '80s, early '90s. So those. So guys you went to the school
1: there, correct? This is a small, yeah. if I'm not mistaken, a small Christian school in Spokane. Is that right? Yeah, it, it is. Yeah. So I, I were mean, you they're... huge rivals with Gonzaga?
6: No, Gonzaga was uh, was before Gonzaga's basketball was really good. We we played. We didn't play them. We were playing teams like Linfield College and Whitman College and all of that. I mean, I had to go to a really small, obscure school to even be on the bench on the basketball team. That was that was the way that worked out. So, yes, I played college basketball, wink, wink, on the bench of an NAI school 35 years ago. Well, listen, so it was I, fun. the one time I've been to Spokane, which I think is a
1: beautiful city, I, my buddies and I were driving through, and we stopped yeah. and had what we thought was like a, a completely exquisite meal that I think might have given us all food poisoning from a place called Senior Froggies <laughs> in Spokane. You ever been to Senior oh, yeah. Froggies? Yeah, <laughs>
6: that's great. Yeah. That's really, yeah, yeah, I know. I get back there every once in a while. I've got a lot of friends there. Uh, they, you know, that town has the biggest three-on-three basketball tournament in the country. They used to have, like, I mean, tens of thousands of whatever people, 50,000 people, whatever it was. But it was unbelievable. They used to take the kids over there, too. So it's, it is a great town. It's, a great, it's an underrated golf town if you're ever out there. Did you so. grow up near Spokane? No, I grew up in Sacramento. You know, my dad had gone to college up there and I wasn't sure what I was going to do, where I was going to go and ended up deciding to go there. It's funny in that day. I mean, I I took a Greyhound bus up there for my visit. It sounds like it's from the 1950s or something, but, um, yeah, I went up there almost sight unseen, drove up there and didn't know anybody. And, uh, you know, made it four years. And I, I stayed in Washington State. I've been up here ever since. Now, when you were a kid, how much
1: of a bragging right was it that Eight is Enough was fictionally set in Sacramento? <laughs> it was a big
6: deal. I don't think I knew that at the time. I used to watch that at the time. Yeah, oh, it was you're the, right.
1: It was a great. It was the best show ever. It had the best theme song. He wrote oh, for the Sacramento he, Bee. It was great, right?
6: He really did. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, really, really good. So uh, it was fun going. You know, I would say... Uh, I was in high school when the Kings moved there, so that was a big deal, too, getting a little bit of NBA and uh, still got a lot of uh, good memories there and, good, uh, and got a lot of family there, too. So.
1: You had no idea we'd start with C.J. Stroud and finish with Senior Froggies, no. did you? Well, no.
6: My gosh, you're going to have no listeners left if we go much longer. <laughs> yet, so.
2: He That's is right. Mike Sando. We
1: only
6: had eight to begin with, Mike. Come on. <laughs> we lost them all
2: on tangent. That. Right. <laughs> my gosh. All right. Hey, thanks. Thanks, Mike. Take it easy. That's Mike Sando. Covers the NFL for The Athletic. You can follow him on Twitter at SandoNFL.